0: Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component 1, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to Widgmo.com and check them out. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 86 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Jameson Dance.
1: Hello, friends.
0: Merrick Christensen. Hey, guys. Joe Eames. Hey, there. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.TV. And this week, we have a special guest, and that is Robin Ward. Hello. So, Robin, you haven't been on the show before. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly?
2: Yeah, sure. My name's Robin Ward, as you mentioned. Uh, I, a lot of people know me by my alias, Evil Trout, which I've been using for a long time. I'm a co-founder of Discourse, the open source forum software with uh, Sam Saffron and Jeff Atwood. It's... Uh, a Ruby on Rails, but also JavaScript app. Actually, GitHub classifies it as JavaScript, so I think it's like the majority now. I also previously worked on a web game called Four which was moderately successful. It was like featured in The Onion and, and Wired and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, I just love talking about JavaScript.
0: Awesome. So uh... so do we. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! Yeah, we should do that every week.
2: We should. We should. Yeah.
0: All right, so. We talked a bit about discourse. We have actually had two episodes about it on Ruby Rogue. Yeah. And, yeah, it does sound like, for the most part, you're using Ruby on Rails to kind of provide the back-end APIs and, you know, maybe a little bit of other functionality. And the majority of the stuff is in Ember.
2: Right. It's quite a big Ember app. I've heard like for a long time I used to wonder like is it the biggest ember app in production and uh but since then I I have heard that there are a couple out there that are bigger but it's like at least the biggest open source one and uh it's kind of many, the flagship
1: one it gets pointed at a lot
2: Yeah I mean it's like kind of like for better or worse considered a reference app I say for worse because like I'm gonna be honest, not all my code is the best code ever, you know, like that I've ever written. So sometimes I think people look to it and be like, Oh, this is the true way to do it. You know, and it's not officially blessed by the Ember people or anything like that. It's just like we try we you know, we try to keep the code in the best shape as we can at any time.
3: Yeah. But, and uh, it it does seem kinda of blessed by the Ember people, right? You'll have Tom Dale and some of those other guys sort of point to it a lot.
2: Yeah. I mean, the cool thing about it is because, you know, it's free and open source and anyone could just jump in there and look at how it's made, which is kind of awesome because, uh, I mean, if they're talking about, hey, this is how Ember works, you kind of have to learn from the tutorials yourself otherwise, unless you had something like this to look at. We were actually wondering recently, like, does Angular have an equivalent, you know, giant app? I know there's a lot of Angular apps in production because it's phenomenally popular, but I don't think they have the same kind of like open source, large scale thing. So it's hard to get an idea you know, how a big open-source Angular app could look. Yeah, no, that's
3: that's totally true.
0: So speaking of Angular, I know that a few people here tend to favor different JavaScript frameworks. What what made you guys settle on Ember?
2: You know, in the beginning, when I was looking at them, I, I guess the big one at the time was Backbone. And I looked at Backbone, but I actually found like it did very little, which I've since found out is kind of like their philosophy. It's about, you know, we just give you a, a minimalistic tool set you know, a thousand lines of code, I think it was at the time, that you can just read and, like, get a grasp on yourself. But uh, otherwise, you kind of have to roll it yourself. And I, like, um, I looked at the other ones. At the time, Angular and Ember were both very early on. And uh, I think em- Ember sung to me because, you know, I came from a Ruby on Rails background. Four mores, that game I mentioned was, like, 100% Ruby on Rails. And uh, I really like some of the Rails uh, philosophies, like convention over configuration and stuff like that. And Ember seemed a lot closer to that to me. So I also just like the way their templates worked, and like how you know I looked at it. I'm like, oh, Handlebars, that looks nice and simple. You know, I always thought like well, this is it's a weird thing to consider, but like at one point I was like, what if I had to do some server side rendering? Could I write my own Handlebars interpreter? And it like it looks simple enough that I'm like I could do that. With something like Angular that uses like DOM templates, I'd have to actually. You know, create a whole DOM environment using like phantom.js to do the rendering and stuff like that. So I was like, this seems like a, a bonus, but mostly it was just a philosophical thing.
1: Sure. And you guys have been using Ember since the very early days. There's been several rewrites of major portions of the framework. Can you talk about how you navigated those? I mean, you basically had to rip out the core of your app and update it to meet, I mean, thinking of the router change and then there are also bunch right. of changes once 1.0 hit.
2: Right. Okay, so Ember has had, I guess, I think there's been two major, I wouldn't say rewrites, but major changes to the router in the time that we've been using it. Because we've been on Ember, like, Discourse is approaching two years old from the time that I start, like I started with Jeff. And back then it was quite different. And I think when I started, there was actually no router in Ember. So we had to like, I actually wrote my own router, which is kind of a weird thing to do. But I guess if you're, you know, used to a backbone app or something like that, it's not, it wasn't that much code. But when the Ember router came out, I was like, oh, actually, this is a lot more sophisticated and we should change to it and like put in an effort to do that. It hasn't always been easy. Like, to be honest, like the first time the router came out, I was like, okay, this is a different way of thinking about things. Let's just, you know, restructure it. And I think it took about a week full time. Uh, The second time it changed, that was a fair bit of work. Um, I mean, at the time, at the, by that point, I was on, I guess, Yehuda and Tom's radar. So they were really nice and reached out to me and were able, like, to answer my questions over IM and stuff like that. So I got, like, I guess, first class support from those guys because they really wanted, like, an open source application to showcase what Ember could do. So, did, did you uh, rage
4: at them for screwing you again?
2: You know what? No, I I actually didn't rage. They were extremely, I think, apologetic in advance because they knew what they were doing, but. The thing is, the second router, uh, was unequivocally better to me. Like, oh, it was so much better. It is, so it's like when they showed the code examples. Okay. So by that, by that point, we had actually set up a private, semi-private Ember discourse forum before discourse was, you know, even, I think, announced. And they were using it to discuss it, and they were discussing the new router there. And I'm like, Oh, yeah, that's really the way it should have been. And I think like, if, I mean, if you're comparing something like Ember to Angular, one of the big difference is the router. And, uh, and the power and the way that the design that it works, the way that, you know, they've implemented it. So I was like, on one hand, I was like, oh, this is going to be a fair amount of work. But on the other hand, I'm like, but once we're done, things are just organized so much better. So I couldn't really hate them for that. Uh, and again, it was it was a fair amount of work. That one took about, I don't know, a week and a half or two weeks. We really, really wanted to be on it. And it was, it was coming out just at the same time that we were announcing Discourse. So I was like, okay, like, last thing I want to do before we go live is... Make sure we're on at least the most modern version of Ember. Since then, I would say they had like a point release change to the router that added the asynchronous abilities, uh, which is really awesome, but that didn't cause a major problem. If anything, it fixed some bugs that we had with the previous ones. So overall, like I actually didn't find the changing APIs that difficult. I think other people were, were, were kind of frustrated because I think whenever there's like a really new way of doing things and a framework is in I guess, like in active development, things are changing quickly, and you have to make an effort to stay on top of it. And uh, understandably, some developers get frustrated when things change underneath them, and they they have a bad experience and go away. So, uh, but we stuck with it, and I'm I'm actually really
0: happy with it. So, speaking of Ember being patterned after Rails, it sounds like they're patterning their uh, development pattern as well, because uh, it seems like the router in Rails is the part that always gets rewritten.
2: <laughs> Could be. I think actually the I think the reason that it happened in Ember is that that router is really a core piece, you know, like one, one major thing about the framework, one opinion is that URLs are, you know, what ties the web together. And I guess the piece of your framework that interacts with URLs is the router. So they wanted to make sure they got that right. And it's not, it's actually kind of weird, you know, if you come, and this is one, I think, thing, thing that's very confusing is that if you come from a Rails background, a lot of the Ember terms are, are the same, but mean different things. And I, I guess that has to apply with your application being long lived rather than short lived. Like in, in a Rails request, like typically, you know, you go to a URL, it, the router loads up, it figures out what action you should go to, dispatches it, and does it. But in Ember, it's like that page or view or what have you is going to stay around for a really long time. So the whole API around that and the concepts are really different. So I think it took them a long time to get right. There was also like I don't know, like other frameworks and stuff in the way their routers work aren't as focused around like i said long-lived objects and things like that and they also uh, i think didn't focus on the asynchronous aspect of javascript most of them were like synchronous so i think those two concepts alone were just really difficult to get right and i think they made the right decision before the 1.0 release just being willing to throw it all away and you know start again
3: i think you're right long term that was a good decision but i think it Kind of lost some traction for them early game.
2: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, right now, by most, I guess, maybe by all metrics, Angular is more popular. And that could have something to do with it because they frustrated people early on with those kind of things. Personally, I'd rather have a really good, really good API, even if it takes time. And they were very clear in the beginning like, this is pre 1.0 software, you know? Yeah.
4: yeah. Well it's also better if a framework is really willing to uh make changes to make it better. It's it really stinks when it causes problems for those with implementations, but if you can keep improving, then you don't become sidelined.
2: Right. I, I mean I know some people unfortunately who have Ember like 0.9 apps and they're like, well, we're not gonna update it. But on the other hand, they're like, it works. It's not exactly the same thing as a server-side thing. Like you don't typically get the same amount of security holes and things like that to warrant like a need to update frequently. It's more about you know getting the features. But if you have everything laid out nicely and your application is working with an older version, you can support that for a really long time without having to worry about it.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Have there been things that you've struggled with with Ember? Things that have been hard to deal with? I mean, other than the fact that you've had things like the router change out from under you.
2: That's a good question. I mean, we we really care about performance. When we, when we were on the Ruby Rogues podcast, Sam spoke a lot about, you know, the things he's done to Ruby to make it faster and mm-hmm. Rails. And Ember, you know, it started at, it's about trade-offs, right? But in some ways, I wouldn't say in some ways, almost always rendering on the client is slower than the server for, like, the same template. No, actually, I should qualify that and say, like, if you're rendering the same kind of thing over and over, uh, it can actually be faster because you can send a small template to the client and it can keep re-rendering. But on any given amount of, you know, string manipulation and stuff like that, like server-side applications can really just smoke a client-side one. And we always wanted our app to be fast. So we had to spend, I think, a fair amount of time making discourse fast. And I mean, it's still, it's something that we constantly work on. And we work on, on you know, both sides, the client and the server side. So I think, like, Ember is uh really easy out of the box. Well, sorry, really really productive out of the box, I should say. But it makes it really easy to bind lots of things to one data structure. But sometimes that's not what you want, because with all those bindings add up to be, you know, like a serious performance issue. Mm -hmm. So we spent a lot of time, like, learning how to make Ember fast and stuff like that. So I think that was a little bit of a learning thing. Also, it's like, it's just kind of a new way to build an app maybe maybe some people don't consider it but uh, this was my like my first major browser application and i think learning not to throw away data constantly l- learning how to share things and make sure that you're using you know a single reference to a single user object everywhere and stuff like that that took a lot of learning as well so those those two things i think were the most difficult things for
0: me so i'm just going to ask cuz you talked about performance how do you measure mm-hmm.
2: that oh okay so We actually have... Well, there's two ways. So I have an extension that I've built for Ember called Ember Render Speed. And uh, I can find a link for you. But essentially, you just plug it into your Ember app, and then it gives you a little tree of how long it's taking all your views to render every time they render. And you can break it down by clicking on the tree in your console and expanding things. So basically, it gives you a milliseconds output for the the raw rendering speed. And then you can try different things. The, The biggest optimization people can make is like unbinding... Bound things, so if you know that a like a nugget of data never changes, then if you unbind it, you get a much better performance. Uh, the second thing I did was I created the uh, Ember Performance Suite, which is uh, a series of you know really intense JavaScript operations on an Ember application that you can run in a browser, and then you can like see you know how Ember is performing. I used that when I went like and did my last round of like performance improvements to Discourse. We were focusing on Android at the time because we found that Android is much, much slower than like iOS or desktop. Like it's much slower than it should be. So I created this Ember performance suite so that I could test various optimizations to the Ember code base and then see how it performed in a wide variety of situations.
1: You mentioned earlier that in general, you found that client-side rendering of templates is slower than server-side rendering. Do you have references or data for that? Uh, I mean. Or is this just from your personal experience? Well,
2: yeah, that's from my personal experience. I mean, you can look at how long it takes Ember to render like a complicated view. And sometimes it's like a hundred milliseconds or something like that. Versus on Rails with, uh, ERB or even Haml, we see like 50 or 30 or something like that. So, I mean, again, it depends on the the type of template and stuff you're doing. Like the client can make a lot of optimizations that the server just can't do because it's long lived. But, uh, and when you're repeating a lot of things, like one thing the server sucks at is it, let's say you're sending a long, a long table of HTML, that's hundred or 200 rows. That's going to be hundreds of K perhaps of HTML that's generated. But if you have a template, you can just, uh, send a small handlebars template and then just the JSON data, which compresses really well. And then, I mean, it can render a lot faster from that. Actually, i still say the rendering is probably slower. It's just the transfer from the server to the client is like a lot of that data is skipped. So it's a trade-off. You're like, I'm sending less data across, but it takes longer to render, but you still get a snappier experience. Sure.
3: Have you run into any other performance issues or optimizations that are useful for Ember?
2: Besides unbinding things? Yes. I would say, well, Ember has this concept of views where essentially every... Almost every time you make an if statement, or every time you evaluate a binding, or every time you loop through an each, or make an outlet, any, basically anything you put in the DOM is a set of these nested views. And sometimes you can actually create many more views than you wanted to by overusing if statements and each statements and stuff like that. Basically putting a lot of logic in your template. And if you have a lot of nested views, performance does go down. So that's another thing I keep an eye on, is you know how many views are we actually spawning for this? In some cases, we actually do, like, we revert to raw rendering, and Ember actually has a really good uh, capacity for doing this. Like, you can, in any view class that you define, you can say, you can define a render method and give it a buffer and then push strings to the buffer, and it's much, much faster than if you're using handlebars with bindings, but the disadvantage there is that nothing is bound. So often what I do is I start by making a template and bind everything in the template and then make sure everything is working where it's nice and easy. And then once we're sure that the feature is stabilized and stuff like that, sometimes we'll take a step back and be like, well, let's override this template with like raw rendering because maybe it's a button that exists on every post on the site, you know, and then you're showing that a hundred times. And that Those hundred times of rendering that button really adds up. So strings and raw rendering is much better in that case. Got
0: it. So what, what kinds of things are you planning on adding to discourse going forward that, uh, you know, specifically would be interesting to this audience? That's a good question,
2: right? There's, there's a couple of things that are like on my roadmap for the JavaScript stuff that I really want to work on. One is something that I'm working on right now, which is uh, the ability to unload views as they go off screen. And that's something I'm just testing out now. Now, I don't know if this is too specific to Discourse, but to anyone who's used Discourse, our topics have infinite scrolling. And if you just scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll, it's actually adding a lot of posts into the DOM, and that can take up a lot of memory. So right now I'm working on a little uh, widget to swap out views that are no longer on screen. Kind of like you guys might have seen this trick done on some sites with JavaScript where, you know, sometimes there's large images and they only load once you scroll them into view. Now, that's the bandwidth saving, but you can actually do the same thing for memory and performance if you keep track of the view. Now, the, the disadvantage is that you have to keep track of the vertical height of that. But uh, it looks like I have right now something pretty close to proof of concept, which would be like a view you could use in your Ember app or a, a class you could subclass. And then automatically when it goes off screen, it can unload itself. And then, you know, use a lot more memory and presumably render less in the DOM to make the DOM scrolling faster. And then when it comes back onto the screen, then it'll do what it has to do. So that seems to be pretty effective right now, especially if you use
1: things like infinite scrolling or really long pages. Oh, I was just going to ask, if you are scrolling and while you're scrolling, you're removing things above you as you're scrolling down. How does that not change where you're scrolled to in the app? Or do you just leave like a, a, an empty div that takes up space still somehow? Does that question right. make sense?
2: Yes, yes. That's exactly what you have to do. So, so what I'm what I'm considering here is a post. So, a topic is made up of many posts. Let's say maybe hundreds or thousands. And once you've rendered a post, you know the height of it. So once it scrolls off vertically off the top, you can actually swap out that view with just like an with an empty div that has the same height that the view used to have, and then the scrolling stays in the exact same spot. Sure. And then, and then when the view, when the view comes back, you reconstruct the view in Ember and all the bindings and all that stuff and then render it right into the same spot. And it, it doesn't adjust the scrolling like in my example. The only tricky thing is, is if you want to make a placeholder before you've rendered it, you need to know the height. So that's like something I'm trying to figure out now. Like I think that can't be like a swap in thing. I think in some cases you can, maybe if someone's rendered it before, we could store that. And then, you know, pull that back out of local storage or something like that. Or maybe even store it on the server side. But that gets a little weird because different clients, I'm sure, are going to render different vertical
1: heights and stuff like that. That's that's really a problem we've run into, yeah. Where you're trying to calculate layouts and you don't know until you insert it how big stuff is. So I'd be really interested to hear about your solutions for that.
2: Yeah, it's actually like a really small amount of Ember code right now for what it does. I think it's like thirty lines, and it seems like a swap, a drop-in replacement for any view. But it's gonna, it's gonna take a little more work. But hopefully, in the next, within the next week or so, we'll deploy some version of it and get it out there and let people try it out. The other thing uh, that I want to work on that I think is really interesting is like kind of a more powerful identity map. So right now, just so we're clear, like a lot of people, a lot of Ember applications use Ember Data, but Discourse is not. Discourse, kind of, when I started programming it, the Ember Data page said. Ember data is totally not stable, not ready for production. So that kind of scared me off, and I looked at what's involved in making an Ember application speak to a server without kind of a client-side ORM-type framework, and it wasn't that much work. So I was like, so we just started using, you know, raw AJAX calls, and it's lasted us this long. But there are certain disadvantages to not using Ember data, and one is uh, the identity map. So I'm talking about the pattern where if I load a user with ID 1, and then another request once the user with ID 1, they can just use the one that's in memory, rather than you know, going to the server and getting all that information again. Or if the server uh, returns user ID 1 to reuse the same instance in memory of the user that was instantiated the first time. So Ember, I think, like goes really far to make sure that you reuse the same objects. Like When you make a link in an Ember application, if you link to a route and you reference a user, for example, it actually passes the reference to that user through to the other route. It doesn't pass like an ID, like other frameworks that tend to be, you know, like, so if you said, I'm linking to this user, it would link to 123. And then that URL would then have to look up user 123 somewhere else, like in a number app, by default, it just passes the user on through. So your route already has the same reference, which is really powerful. But it's not, it's not perfect, like, because there are, you can't guarantee that every place in your application that Would request a user is going to get a handle on the same one. So I'm looking at making like a lightweight identity map that I can use for this. Now, one problem with that, and it seems that most identity maps I've looked at in the JavaScript universe like never unload data, which is kind of a little weird because um, I guess traditionally it's not a major problem, but uh, most of them will just shove, you know, like a key value kind of hash of objects. But most never think, oh, let's unload the ones that haven't been used in a really long time. And I think that's one thing that JavaScript makes particularly difficult because you can't tell when there are no more references to an object out there. So you either like do, like I've seen some people like suggest things like do reference counting or something like that. So I want to make like some, something with an API that's not insane that can actually unload objects once you're no longer using them after a certain amount of time.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, I think. I think Merrick's done some work on something like that. And I know one of my friends as well has done a cache for Angular that I think uses just, it's just least recently used caching. So if it hits the limit, it wow. just kicks out stuff that it wasn't used in a yeah. while. But yeah, mine was a, whole, uh, that's a whole can mine of worms reference caching.
3: Yeah, it's, it is. It's some problem. Mine use reference counting, but it, uh, the reference counting you could just hook into the framework, right? So like when the view gets constructed and when it gets decomposed and you, changes the reference counting, but uh, I, I think if I were to go down the Angular route, I would look at that Angular-cache. dash
2: I'll definitely uh, look at that. that
1: that's awesome. A, yeah, that's a tough problem. It's really tough. It's one though. of the hard problems in computer science, right? <laughs> well, you can yeah. do it in JavaScript, like everything else. Yeah,
2: because like, if you imagine that every post that every user uses on a Discord site is thrown into an identity map, like very quickly you'd run out of memory, you know, like if you stayed browsing the site on a
1: long for a long time.
0: So yeah. to what, extent what does this course is, do right now? Say that again. I'm sorry.
1: I, I was just going to ask, what does this course do right now? Does it just throw away the data or because you said it sounds yeah, well, like you're not using an identity map right now.
2: We, we don't use an identity map for most areas in a topic. Like when you're, when you're in a topic, a topic has its own identity map of all the posts. But when you leave the topic, it throws all that away because we know that you're not looking at because posts are never shared between topics. Sure. So it works pretty well there, but it doesn't work as well with things like user objects or, you know, other other kind, kinds of data that are shared across the rest of the site. So that's that's more of a challenge there. But yeah, I'll definitely look at this Angular cache thing that looks really promising.
0: So what, what I'm wondering is, to what extent is uh, Discourse a single-page app?
2: Well, first of all, like, if you don't mind, I, 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 I don't like the term single-page app. Personally, because I actually think discourse, like as you navigate a discourse forum, the URL changes all the time. So I'm always like, well, we're kind of representing it as different pages. Why is it called a single page app? But that's just me being pedantic, I guess. Discourse is essentially 100% a browser application. When you first come to the the site, it'll you know download this giant JavaScript payload, and then all the rendering is then done client side as you navigate all the URLs. There are a few cases where we don't use ember like i think the reset password url and the activate url don't because they're just like really simple things that don't need to load up an application for that kind of functionality and we'll also sometimes more if you're an admin than like just a regular user but we'll refresh the whole page to clear out the state so like if you're if you're editing categories on the site it's actually easier for us to just say you know reload this page and unload all the current data than it is to you know, manually figure out all the places that we've kept categories in our memory. But yeah, I think it's actually a really good fit for, like, a browser application because it's forums, have, I think, have a different kind of uh, use case for most users. Like, people don't generally come to it, like, a blog and read one post and then go away. They often, like, go to a forum and they read a topic and then they go to the next topic and they read that one and they go to another one, you know. Like, they stay around for a really long time. So you can take advantage of a lot of that Persistence of objects and client-side rendering in those cases, because you're eating the upfront cost. Whereas if you're making something like a blog, you might not want to like send a giant ball of JavaScript down the wire just for rendering one page. You know that seems like a bit overkill. Like my blog actually is just static HTML. And some people are like, why don't you use Ember for your blog? And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe if it was like blog admin section or editing tools, I would consider something like that, but. I think you really have to have a situation where you want to take advantage of something before you build a browser application.
3: So I'm going to kind of change the subject just a little bit. Ember has added some new stuff, right, since you guys started, like components. Have you guys made use of any of those things? What new Ember features have been like useful and interesting versus what ones haven't?
2: That's a great question. Well, besides the router, which we talked about, they added, uh, there's two things that I that I really like. About ember and one is uh, I really like the uh, computed property macros, which is I don't know if you guys are familiar with the, what a computed property is, but it's essentially you can make a property on an object using embers object model and say this property is composed of these other properties and it's essentially a caching mechanism that you don't have to worry about updating because like if you say the area of a square depends on its width and height then it knows to only recalculate the area when either the width or height change. Yeah. Um, so the syntax of writing them was, was like, always not that bad. Like, you just said, you know, this is the name of my property, and it's a function, and it's based on these two other things. But they added uh, these macros for, you know, kind of, like, similar to Boolean logic, but you could just, you could really easily write computed uh, properties by just saying, like, this is dot. And or ember.computed.not and stuff like that to just, you know, like shorthand for writing these properties. And then you can compose pro- properties of other properties, you know, and it's really efficient. I really like that. Okay. I, so I have, a, I have a blog post that shows an example of how that works if you guys are interested. The other thing that I really like is components, as you mentioned. Now, compo- Ember always had views, which are not like in- incredibly different than, uh, than components are, but, but they kind of have a different way of, I guess the the way they access the data is different. Like components are designed for reuse and they don't want to... So how could I say this easily? Okay, like a view often is bound to the controller as well. So like if a view had a button in it and and someone clicked on a button, it would be normal to say, hey, controller, the user clicked this button. So in that way, the view knows about the the controller and the controller knows about the view. But a component is designed in a different way where... You're expected to give the component all the data that it needs. Um, and that's actually really powerful because it means that it's like not as tightly coupled to your controller and it makes it easier to reuse. And in theory, it means that people can take a component from one Ember application and put it in another because whenever you use it, you just say, Hey, component, here's what you need to work, you know, rather than. That's like a contract. Yes. So the main, it's actually, it's, it's kind of clever in the way that like this feature, we've, we've been using views in discourse for, forever, like since the beginning, and using for, we even use them as components, like we had discourse text field, which was like our custom text field that had, uh, in our case, support for like I18n for the placeholder and stuff like that, just a couple little attributes that we use. And that was essentially a component, but just as a view. So what a component does is it forces you to make sure that you're not, like the contract doesn't exist between the view up to the controller. And if it does, you have to explicitly state it. Um, and that it turns out to be a really good idea. So we're a bit behind on that because this is something that came into Ember, you know, really late, right, right towards 1.0. Uh, so we've recently started doing it. So some recent commits to Discourse have like um, sortable column headings, for example, and those are built using components. And I've replaced a lot of our previous views with components, and I think it's kind of just the right way to structure things. Like um, it's starting to make me think that you know views probably shouldn't know what controller they belong to, you know. They should, you know, they should be able to exist outside of that. So it's kind of making me think that I should always push the references into my views, even if they're not strictly speaking components, just so that they can you know, maintain
1: that like, looser coupling. Can you maybe talk about how the Ember idea of components maps to web components? Because it seems like the dream of web components is, is similar <laughs> in that you can drop them into different apps and they just interoperate, but they're not tied to one specific framework
2: right i'm I'm not like an expert on this, but as I understand it, ember components are built on the same philosophy as the web components, but they're not like uh they're definitely not built up in the same syntax and stuff like that. like you have to use handlebars to use an ember component. but I think the idea is is that let's get started with the philosophies of web components and the ways that those should work now with Ember without having to you know use complicated browser shims or you know whatever compatibility layers you would need to get that to work today, and then later on. This should be a much like easier upgrade to actually using a proper web component. So but I think, yeah, I'm not I'm definitely not an expert on what the spec says about how those are supposed to work. It's pretty it's pretty complicated. But I do know that the ones in Ember right now are are useful today and I think very clean and I would always use them, like if I'm building an
1: Ember application for any reusable kind of widget or thing like that. So it sounds like they're trying to align them philosophically while the API is still being nailed down? I think that's definitely the truth,
2: but I do know, like I said, that like the one thing I do know is the HTML web component spec doesn't use Handlebars, you know, to instantiate them. It has a different mechanism, so it's not going to be like the second that that's nailed down that all of a sudden Ember components, you know, you could use them outside of Ember, you know. So it's going to require, but a little bit of a difference. But philosophically, it's like I think it'll put people in the right place, and people who are using Ember components today will probably be more prepared for that kind of thing. I hope.
0: Now, if somebody wanted to just get started with Ember, what recommendations would you give them as far as where to get started and and uh, what kinds of things that Ember really lends itself well to?
2: Well, I think for a long time the documentation wasn't great on the Ember site, but now it's actually pretty good. I would actually just start on the Ember site, working through the tutorial. Like, there's one where it, it's like under getting started, where it like takes you through building a whole whole application, and I often point people to that. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of good Ember tutorials out there on the web and stuff, just so to start there. I think Ember really shines when you ha when you're when you're actually building like an application rather than say like something like a widget. Like I mentioned backbone earlier, and I think backbone is really well suited to doing things like if you have just like a little iframe that has like a little dynamic activity in it and stuff stuff like that, you might not want to suck down the whole. Ember dependency, which is quite big, right? Even, even minified and gzipped, it's quite a lot for just something, small functionality. So it's, it's really meant for, like, an application, like something that works in your browser that has uh, advanced functionality, where you, where you want the user to be around for a long time. You know, like, I don't think Ember is necessarily a good fit for applications where people bounce really fast. Like, come in, look at something, and leave. It's really for people who are using your website for, a, you know, to do something awesome. So I would say, like, yeah, if you have a... They, they say ambitious is the way they use it, but I, mm-hmm. I I just think, like, anytime you have, like, a, you know, sophisticated application that's going to have a bunch of logic, it's it's a huge win
0: for that. So the other question I have is, it sounds like you've been playing with Angular a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. When would you choose one over the other? And and the other guys can chime in here, too. I'm I just curious as what your takes are on this.
2: That's a good question. I think... I definitely think that, like more than people admit that it, there there's it's just like a kind of a philosophical difference between the two frameworks recently there's uh, actually Alex Matchner just put out some slides comparing the two that I thought were really well done actually that was going to be my pick for this episode so I apologize for already Lazing ahead on that. But yeah, it was a fantastic thing. And he basically said that Ember is really Ember is advertised as a framework and Angular is not. Angular, Angular expects you to kind of build your own framework out of its pieces. So it depends like kind of like where you're coming from and, and how you like things to work. I I know a few Angular developers in the Toronto area who love it. And but the one question I often ask them is like, okay, here's a question. I know how you've built your application in house to your, your wants and needs and your domain and stuff like that. But how comfortable would you feel if you all of a sudden went to a different shop in Toronto and then had to work on their Angular app? Would you know where things, where, would you know where all the files are? Would you know how the application is laid out? And always they answer no, because you essentially have to come up with your own conventions where, where Ember is really you know, convention over configuration. So they're like, you will always know that the template is called this and the class is called this and the route is called that. So I think like it has that going for it. So really like it depends what speaks to you. Do you want to, do you want to go in there and tinker and make it exactly as you want it? Or do you want to, do you like conventions and do you like knowing what to expect and things like that? So I personally would favor Amber in almost all cases. But I think there are probably some applications where uh, Angular would probably be a better fit just depending on what you're building.
1: Awesome. I have a question. It's a wild change of topic. Sure. Where did the name Evil Trout come from?
2: Uh, that's, it's, not, it's not super exciting, actually. So I mentioned that I made this game called Forum Wars, which was like a parody of the internet. So it's like a role-playing game where you role-play uh, an archetype of an internet user, like a troll or an emo kid or something like that, and you go on fake internet websites and own them. For experience and stuff. So, uh, when we came up with that project, at the time I'd like, I'd always had aliases in the past that never stuck. And I figured that like, this is a good opportunity to just create a new personality. So I just like, it was like, like no single words were available. I wanted something that like, you know, that wouldn't be taken on every single site. So I was like, obviously I have to go with two words. And I was just like going through multiple combinations in my head. And I don't, I don't know how I hit evil trout, but I just like, it just stuck and I've gone with it ever since. I just think it also, like, makes a funny image. So if you guys can see my Skype avatar right now, it's like a cartoon version of a trout. And uh, a user of four Wars drew that for me. And I just I just really love, like, the image that it portrays. You know, some kind of sophisticated trout perhaps holding a sword with a mustache or maybe sitting by a fire drinking some brandy because he's evil or something like that i try (laughs) try not to actually be an evil person you know like despite the alias i just think it's just a funny image would the trout be like petting a cat yeah yeah like yeah but the cat (laughs) the cat would have like a snaggle tooth and maybe red eyes or something you know like they have to you know I, i actually think like these days a lot of people don't care about aliases as, as much as they used to. And I think they're like this really fun kind of remnant of, you know, the old DBS days and community. You know. I guess everyone has a username on Twitter, but a lot of people just use like the real name. And I understand why they do that, because they want people to be able to find them by their name and stuff. But you lose that certain little like, oh, that's his cool, You lose the ability cool to cool way of identifying themselves, you know.
0: So can we get an evil trout laugh out of you? <laughs> I don't
1: know. I just imagine this fish like sitting in his chair plotting to blow up the ocean. <laughs> yeah, that's we perfect. don't blow up the ocean.
2: <laughs> Unless you give me one million dollars or something. I don't know, but yep. I like it, and it's stuck. And like, a lot of people know me by it. So, like, I was at an Ember meetup in Toronto recently, and someone was talking, and like, and someone's like, "Oh yeah, an evil trout," and someone's like, "Oh, you're an evil trout." Like, he had met me as Robin. He just had no idea. That's who I was, and I guess that's a downside of, you know, like having an alias is that a lot of people will just recognize you by the alias and not, not your actual name. But then I guess other people can't always remember it. Like someone was saying on IRC recently, they're like, "Oh, do you read that that blog about Ember by that guy? What's his name? Stinkfish?" And they're like, "You mean Evil Trout? Yeah, that's him." You know? So people <laughs> people get it wrong, just as, where they wouldn't probably get a username. Is wrong, that a tool uh, song? Like your full name, Stinkfish? Maybe that's where it came from. I don't know.
0: <laughs> I wonder if that's available on that's Twitter. Stuff.
2: Stinkfish? You can take it. Quick, yeah, somebody, s- somebody register stink stinkfish.com. Oh, there you go. <laughs> oh, damn. Uh, if you guys ever use IRC, there's like this meme where it's like someone slaps someone around with a large trout.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And on Twitter, there's like a bot that whenever trout is mentioned will, you know, it's called like slap trout or something. And it'll like send you an ad message saying, I slapped you around with a large trout. But it's super annoying because that means whenever someone mentions me or retweets me, it makes me susceptible to this thing. So I get hit by this thing like constantly.
0: <laughs> Super annoying.
2: First trout problems, man.
0: Awesome. So one other thing that I'm I've been wondering about, and I've been wondering about this with Angular as well, but I guess that's a topic for another show. How do you manage the the authentication and stuff? Because for most of the applications that I've built, a lot of that is managed by the back end. And so you know, how do you keep that consistent between front end and back end?
2: You mean, well, for discourse, it's not too hard because if there's, there's basically two states. One, you're logged in, or two, you're not. So when, the, when we download the initial payload, we include a little bit of JSON in there. Like We call it preload, preloaded data. So we'll sometimes include your user record. And if that's present, then you know, it's deserialized and we show all the logged in controls. And if it's not, then we show you know, the login buttons and all that stuff. So it's really just like the response from the server handles whether or not you show the login state or not. An earlier version of Discourse would actually, you know, log in using an AJAX call without refreshing the page or anything like that. It was kind of an awesome proof of concept because, like, you can have a login button and it can log you in, and all of a sudden the UI just, like, adds all these controls that weren't there before because you're an admin or whatever. But we actually found that, like, you know what I was talking about with uh, binding before, just having all those if statements for logged in and stuff like that were really bogging us down, if if they were all bound. And the truth is, the user state doesn't change that often. Like, we actually don't want people to log out, like, maybe when you're done, but you shouldn't be doing it frequently, you know, maybe you should log in once in the beginning and once at the end. So it's much easier for us to uh, accept the whole, you know, re-download of the whole page than it is to handle all those crazy bindings to hide and show controls just for the awesome show off thing where, you know, you log in and everything changes.
0: The other question I have is, I was talking to a friend of mine at RubyConf, and he mentioned that uh, his company had moved away from Ruby on Rails as a backend for their application. Incidentally, they are using Ember. And instead, they're using Elixir, which is uh, another language that is written on the Erlang VM. And so it has all of so the... so hot right now. Yeah, and it has the concurrency and the fault tolerance and things like that that you expect from something like Erlang. And so I'm wondering if the difference in performance and fault tolerance and things affect the front end as far as being performant fault tolerant etc or is it really insulated from the back end other than just the way that it makes api calls
2: i think it's really well insulated i mean in the ember community there's a lot of people who are using node for example on the server side or rails is quite popular i guess because you know why cats and some of the philosophies shared on that but i even know a person who uses dotnet on the server side as long as you can spit out JSON and you know, consume REST kind of things, it doesn't really make a large difference, I think, what you use on the server side, which I think is one of the strengths of Ember, actually, is that it forces, or this actually is not specific to Ember, but any kind of you know, browser application framework, is that it forces you to make like, a robust server-side API, and you know that it's battle-tested because you're the one consuming it. Every time your application loads, you know I've worked at other places where we were predominantly a website and we had an API, but if no one was using the API, we didn't you know we, it was easy to introduce regressions and stuff like that, which is really difficult with a browser application. So yeah, I think that would actually be a good way to try out you know, a new server-side language if you if you have confidence in the client side. There are other advantages, too. like if you decide to build an iOS app or an Android app, you know that you have like a JSON API that the developer can start using
0: right away. Yeah. That's one other question that I had for you that I had forgotten about. And that was that I'm taking advantage of uh, some of the JSON APIs for discourse uh, to manage mainly registrations in discourse that, you know, if somebody (laughs) signs up for one of the forums that I manage, um, I just invite them to a, a topic or a thread. Have you found that those APIs are pretty accessible to people who want to integrate from another system like an iPhone?
2: they definitely are working and i think most of them are pretty straightforward where where i feel guilty saying that discourse has an api is that like i think a big part of providing an api is that you have to document it and you also have to maybe version it or at least give them a guarantee that it's not going to be changing and still like discourse hasn't really officially hit 1.0 yet even though we're like i think pretty stable these days so i think like it's easy to use and it's easy to start using, but right now it's a little spooky because we're not offering the guarantee that like, we're not going to change some of those JSON layouts and stuff like that. So, I mean, for certain areas, I think it's pretty stable, but for others, you might just want to check with us first if you were going to build a giant application on top of it because we certainly wouldn't want to screw you down the road when we make a change for something
0: like that. Mm-hmm. So there's no documentation that tells you where, where these endpoints are or how to integrate with them?
2: No, not for the most part. Right now, for, in terms of extensibility, we're really pushing our plugin infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So we were like, because this is one thing that I think all, you know, forum software needs is the ability for people to drop in a plugin and easily extend it. That's actually a huge advantage for browser applications because it's like, it's amazing how often you can introduce entirely new features without a server side hook. Like, that's always like a gee whiz moment. You know, when you're sitting down, you're like, oh, I have this new thing to do. When you sit down, you're making the Ember thing and you're like, realize, oh, all those REST endpoints are actually still good for this entire feature. I can just add javascript. So from a plugin perspective, it's really awesome to be able to just say, here's some javascript, execute this and now the form does something different. And not it doesn't just look different, but it might have a like select all or something that didn't used to previously exist. So that's kind of what we're encouraging for that. But for people who actually want to access the database, yeah, it's a little it's a little riskier to just start using our json apis, but I would think that, you know, like we have a really active dialogue open with you know, any developer. If you make a post on our MetaForum or a GitHub issue and say, like, look, I want to build this awesome thing or I'm doing this thing, I'm sure we can work something out so that we're not you know, giving you a world of pain in the future. You know.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, I don't know if I have any other questions. Uh, do the rest of you guys have more questions or should we wrap up the show?
4: I just want to talk about the article, your blog post. Which one? Which one? Your big one. The big controversial one, the one you mentioned earlier.
2: Right. That's probably, like, the most popular thing I ever wrote. You know, it was like, I've had a couple things on the top of Hacker News, but that one, you know, got hundreds of comments and, you know, spawned like, many, many flame warm posts like that. To me, I mean, while I was excited to get the attention, I was a little disappointed on, like, the kind of conversation that came around about it. I kind of regret writing it in a way, to be honest, because I feel like many of my other blog posts, you know, had, like, really good technical discussion and stuff like that. But this one kind of just got the fanboys from both sides to come out and say, like, no, you're totally wrong for X reason, or, oh, you're totally right for Y reason and stuff like that. And, like, I just thought the discussion around it was, like, not as good. So, like, yeah, you might get to the top of Hacker News and get, you know, tens of thousands of requests for your blog by making something controversial like Amber versus Angular. But I would have much rather, like, if I was to do it again, just been, like maybe here is one feature at a time or like look at how ember does this really well you know rather than a direct comparison but i guess people wanted it on the other hand like people wanted a lot of people are like i've heard of building browser applications or front end an mvc and i don't know which one to use what reasons should i use x over y but i think it's just really hard to have that kind of discussion
1: the interesting thing about the reaction is i feel like it didn't convince anyone from what i read about it it was just people used it as a club, either for Angular or for Ember. They just they just <laughs> yeah. took it and were like, this guy doesn't know anything about Angular, or like, look how much better Ember is than Angular, you know? I, I don't think the article is bad. I think the reaction to it was very, very entrenched.
4: You know, maybe the people that were contributing the conversation, none of them were convinced. But if anything, at least because it had so much popularity, you're going to get a lot of people that are going to see these two new frameworks on their radar. So... If anything, you know, that's good, and at least they'll check them out now.
3: Right. Um, I thought what was I interesting mean, a lot of- about people's responses to the article was that they really just showed the different philosophical camps. Like, the point you were illustrating is there is no blessed way. Like, I don't know what the model's supposed to be, etc. Um, and then there's people going on there and saying, how dare you, you don't know how to use Angular, but that's because the camps, the philosophical ideals behind the frameworks are just different you know one is a framework one is sort of a framework framework
2: exactly i think i mean i don't i'm not aware of any like giant mistakes i made there were some people who commented saying like oh you don't know what you're talking about you should do x but then there would be replies to that saying like for example the root scope they were like well for doing what you're doing you would just use the root scope and then someone else replied never use the root scope you know and then so I don't know, like it's just it kind of it kinda depends what you're looking for and how you want to build things. I've definitely seen really good apps built in Angular. I just think that um and again, philosophically, like out of the box it doesn't answer as many questions. You have to you have to determine your own best practices. And if your if your company can enforce certain standards of quality and certain ways of doing things, you can build extremely good and performant and really updatable and tested applications in Angular. And you can also write really bad code in Ember. Like it's not immune to that either. So I think I, I what I really just do is tell everyone to look at look at all of them and then consider what your values are as a developer. But the worst thing that can happen if you triangular is that you like it and then you want to keep using it. You know, or Ember. You know, the same thing is true.
4: Exactly, it's a great point.
2: Yeah, some people. It's it's it's. I guess one thing that's a bit weird is since I wrote that, some people are like, well. You obviously have a vested interest in in Ember succeeding, and I, I've always thought that that's like actually not true. Uh, although maybe like I'm just blind to it, but like Discourse is an Ember app, so obviously for we want contributors to Discourse, so on that level we want Ember to be successful rather than Angular. But the truth is that I'm really happy with the front end code for Discourse as it is today, and even if you know if Angular is gets more mindshare or whatever, that doesn't negate the fact that we have a really good code base and it doesn't stop people from being able to contribute because it's, you know, it's JavaScript code and there's a lot of JavaScript developers out there. So I don't think, like, I'm biased in the way that, like, for example, maybe a framework creator or someone works for, for a corporation who creates such frameworks could be, but that's just my side point.
0: Awesome. Is that it, Chucky? <laughs> Uh, Yeah, I don't have any other questions, so uh, let's go ahead and uh, do the picks. Joe, do you want to start us off with the picks?
4: I do. So, Robin, since you were talking about Angular best practices and where are they, I felt like this would be a great time for me to plug my latest course with Pluralsight.com, which was be Angular best practices. Awesome. Yeah, so uh, I'll pick that. It's like five hours of coursework, video coursework on Pluralsight.com about Angular and best practices with Angular. Um, I'm also going to pick the game Little Wizards, which I bought at the board game store, although it's actually an RPG. It's you know, a tabletop role-playing game in the same vein as Dungeons & Dragons, but it's actually for kids. So it says on the cover for kids ages 6 to 10... Um, I've got kids. i got a nine-year-old boy, and then I've got three daughters that are uh, 11, 14, and 15. And I played a game with them on Sunday, and we played this game of Little Wizards, and they had... My kids had so much fun. They they, played, they each played a wizard, and they had to go through and <clears throat> figure out why the chocolate was poisoned and, in this town, and they just had a great, absolute great time. So I'm going to pick the game Little Wizards. If you... Remember the days, your glory days of playing RPGs and now you have kids and you'd like to introduce them to the fantastic world of interactive storytelling games and role playing games, then Little Wizards is definitely for you. And then my last pick is going to be the coin. I just saw this on an ad on Facebook before and I'm, I don't think I've ever been more excited about a geeky tech item. At least I haven't been in a long time. It's a credit card that it's literally exactly the size of a credit card, but you can actually use an app. They they send you a little scanner that you plug into your phone. And you use an app, and you can scan every one of your credit cards or loyalty cards or awards cards or whatever, and then the app will, through Bluetooth, send the information over to this one card, and then now that card is every card that you own, and it has a little display on it, and you can flip through it, select the card that you want, then hand the card to the... Register or run it through the register, and it will run as the card that you chose. Just absolutely awesome. I mean, I don't think I've been excited. I, I pre-ordered one. They're not available till sometime next year, but right now they're fifty bucks, and next year, and they're only going to be fifty bucks for like two more weeks, and then they'll be hundred dollars. So, I'm actually going to put a link with, with my referral code because I get five bucks if somebody buys one. <laughs> <laughs> well, not five bucks. You know- I get five bucks off my order, my fifty dollar order.
2: Wow, Joe. Yeah, I'm. Do you know if it works with? Do you know if it works with like the RFID things that are in cards these days? Like I tap my Visa a lot these days rather than swipe. No,
4: it it's not like it does. It's not like RFID or NFC. It's it's just for when it's actually um, you need to run the magnetic strip. And it's cool. It has like it blue has Bluetooth connection to your phone, so that if your phone um gets too far away from the card, like you forget it and leave it, then the card deactivates so that nobody can use your card when you're not around. It was really cool. So the video, I was just—I watched the video, I was so excited, because I have this huge wallet, like the George Costanza wallet, and it, it's so thick, and so I was so excited to get rid of that stupid thing.
0: <laughs> awesome. Yeah. All right, uh, Jameson, what are your picks?
1: I have two. One is um, a free book that Carlos Bueno, he's an engineer at Facebook, just put out. He's amazing. He did um, Lauren Ipsum, I think, which is like a children's book that is also full of computer science parables. It's the nerdiest thing in the world, but it's so cool. Um, and this book is called the Mature Optimization Handbook. So it's kind of a a play on the premature optimization quote by uh, Donald Knuth, and it's just a really detailed and and easy to read breakdown of how you go about optimizing things. It's Kind of focused on server-side stuff, but it's general enough that you can apply it to client-side stuff. And he does a really good job of uh, breaking down myths about performance optimization. It's it's just been a fantastic read. And I have like a giant nerd crush on this guy. So I, I love that he made it. Um, my next pick is Mountain West JSConf again. Uh, I picked it last week. I'm going to keep picking it because the call for proposals is open right now. The JavaScript conference in March in Salt Lake City. Uh, two days, it's going to be cheap. It's going to be very low-key and, and focused on great technical content and to fill your brain to, to bursting with smart ideas. So submit talks, and I hope to see you there. Those are my picks.
0: I want to pile on that one just for a second because I'm also involved with uh, you know helping Mike get some of the planning and stuff done for that. Um, Mike Moore has put on Mountain West Ruby Conference for the past six years, I think. Um, and he's added the JavaScript track this year. He added the DevOps track last year, if you're interested in that. And it's all one week um, for all three, if you want to go to that, or just uh, the JavaScript for the two days. He tries to keep the cost way down, and he tries to keep the technical content really high and really high quality. So, you know, as Jameson said, I mean, this is just going to be a... a I, I can't say that because we have family rating. I almost said anyway, but it it's going to be an awesome conference. So uh, seriously, um, you know, help, help support us. If you have people that you want to hear speak, then uh, send me an email and I'll, I'll pass that along to Mike so we can uh, invite some of these uh, people that you want to hear from. And uh, yeah, l- you know, come out. I'll be there. Sounds like a lot of these other guys will be there. Cause it out here in Salt Lake and uh, yeah, I'll just- be there. Super excited about it. All right, Merrick, what are your picks?
3: So my picks are one, uh, a book that's actually a novel called the remains of the day by Kazu Ishiguro. I think I, I, I hope I didn't butcher his name too badly, but, uh, it's just a really interesting book. It's one of those books that, uh, makes you think a lot. Um, yeah, and uh, I really like it. In fact, yesterday I was reading the book, and I I was thinking all pensively, and I asked a pensive question on Twitter. I was like, "What makes a great software developer?" And uh, no one took my question seriously, which <laughs> took me took me right out of that pensive state of mind. You know, like Man, like well, good when, for this when world. a mom and a dad get together, you know what I mean? Like, I was like, "Dang it, guys! Like, I want to have like an interesting conversation by a fireplace, but Twitter." There just isn't the avenue for that, I suppose. But anyways, that book. Uh, Two is Rust Language. I've been playing with it the last few weeks, and I think it strikes a really awesome balance between nice syntax and a really powerful low level language. I think it's got the best of chances at uh, sort of replacing C and C++, if that is ever a thing. And I am super looking forward to Mountain West Ruby Conference, and I am also organizing ng so if you're interested in that we have a waiting list and you know hit me up on twitter and we'd love to see if we can get more people to come so that's ng conforg
0: awesome all right i've got a bunch of picks the first one is uh this saturday they are releasing the 50th anniversary episode of doctor who it's called the day of the doctor and since this comes out next week it was totally awesome if you didn't see it, go see it. They have a prequel out on YouTube right now it's about seven or eight minutes long and it kind of introduces what the they're calling the war doctor who I guess is a previous incarnation of the the time Lord known as the doctor but in that in anyway they explained why he doesn't uh, disrupt the numbering of the doctors even though he's from the past or the doctor's past so anyway, it's, it's going to be fun. I love the show, so I'm really, really excited to see it come out. My next pick was something that uh, Josh Susser on the Ruby Rogues podcast pointed out, and it's, it's the reviews on these uh, sugar-free gummy bears on Amazon. And uh, so you have to understand that uh, lowbrow humor, I'm not a sophisticated guy, lowbrow humor such as uh, potty humor is something that makes me laugh. And so, uh, these uh, sugar-free gummy bears apparently have some uh, gastrointestinal consequences if you eat them. And, uh, I mean, some of these uh, reviews are downright funny. Some of them are poetic. It's just, <laughs> I, I was laughing and laughing and laughing. So, anyway, I, I can't say this enough, but go check out these gummy bears and scroll down to the reviews because they are funny. I've also read uh, a book or I listened to a book on on Audible called Remote, and it's written by the guys at 37signals. Um, and uh, it's really awesome if you work from home or if you're on a remote team or you're trying to convince your boss to let you go and work remote part or all of the time. It's a terrific book, and it explains some of the things that you need to do, need to have, and need to know in order to provide infrastructure for that. But anyway, I, I don't have... I have some subcontractors that work for me and I'm a freelancer, so I don't have a boss that I necessarily report to, but it gave me a lot of good ideas for the way that I do things. So I'm going to recommend that one. And the last one, this Monday, um, I've, I've had type 2 diabetes for the last six or seven years. And I, I went to the doctor on Monday and it turns out that all of my uh, diabetes is way out of control, which is why I hadn't been feeling good lately. Um, and so I just want to pick being healthy. And... Uh, there's a book out there called The Healthy Programmer by Joe Kuttner. Super good book, and I just want to recommend that you go, uh, go read it. Uh, the Freelancer Show, we actually did an episode and interviewed Joe, and it was pretty good too. But overall, you know, just be mindful of your health. Um, programming is fun, making a living is important, <laughs> but if you don't have your health, then, you know, you're really going to miss out. So, uh, those are my picks. Robin, what are your picks?
2: Oh, it's hard to follow that, which I totally agree with. I mentioned earlier uh, Alex Smachner's slides about uh, Angular versus Ember, which I think is I, uh, the best one I've seen so far. I think better than my blog post about the subject, so I, I have to pick that. My second pick would be uh, Blizzard's new upcoming game, Hearthstone, which is in closed beta right now. But it's, it's closed beta, but it's like a million people are in the beta, so pretty much anyone who's made a slight effort to get a key can get one. But I play that like r- right now every day, pretty much at the end of the business day, my coworker Neil and I play two rounds of Hearthstone because it's just, it's so much fun. And, uh, I really regret that it's region locked because I can't play with Regis in, or other coworker in Europe because they won't let us play together. But if, if you guys like games like Magic the Gathering, uh, this is a free to play online card game and it's awesome. So I, I highly recommend that. And then my third thing, I, so do picks have to be good? Or is it can be like Times Man of the Year, where it's, like, Notorious? It can be... Oh, it can be Notorious. Yeah. It's up to you. Okay. So yeah. I'm going to pick... Yeah, I, I picked Crack once, so it was weird. Well, that's funny that you mention that, because I was going to pick Rob Ford, Toronto's Crack-smoking mayor, as my third... Oh, man. Which has kind of, put Toronto, where I'm, where I'm proudly from, on the map, so he's not <coughs> going pick for making a mockery of the city, so...
1: So, I follow you on Twitter, and I feel like I've got the inside scoop on it, because I've, I've been <laughs> hearing about it from all your tweets for weeks and months, and now it's, like, blowing <laughs> up. I was there. I was there when Rob Ford drunkenly oh. called that radio station. It just so gets worse. So, it's worsen. so good.
2: It's, it's like, uh, I, I've heard in other countries, politics are like this, but I guess in Canada, we're not really used to having, like... Like tabloid style, like every day there's something that goes on. So it's just it's just been an insane thing that's taken up a lot of my thinking. Even though like I I really dislike it, but like it's it's there. So that's my third pick.
0: You you need to move to Chicago or New York City, man.
2: <laughs> yeah, dude. Arnold Schwarzenegger was a
3: governor, so that doesn't tell you how tabloid we get
0: <laughs> up yeah. here.
2: But he didn't smoke crack and admit to it, and is
1: still mayor. <laughs> he was more discreet. Yeah, that's true. It that wasn't smoking crack.
2: His his biggest scandal was like he fathered a illegitimate child with his uh like
1: housekeeper or something, right? So Oh yeah, crack that we that. know of. Maybe he's got bigger scandals. Yeah. Anyways, that's an awesome thing.
2: Thanks a lot for having me guys, though. It was uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a great yes, discussion. Thank you. For coming thanks.
0: On, thanks for coming. All right, well we'll wrap up the show. We'll catch you all next week.